0: Welcome back to DC EKG with Eric Uland and myself, Joe Grogan. We're continuing our discussion with Tom Phillipson. You can find Tom's writings at Thomas J. Phillipson on LinkedIn. T-O-M-A-S-J-Philipson. There's no H in Tomas. But we've before we jump into your reflections on the COVID pandemic and some of the decisions that may have been done. Uh, correctly, and some of the decisions that may have been done incorrectly. Let's talk about um, your role at that time for just a second and frame it for the listeners and and those who are going to watch this program. So at the time, you were acting head of the Council of Economic Advisors, true? Correct. And so you were being consulted on, uh, right before the pandemic hit, the economic growth Uh, projections, how the economy was doing. My recollection is we were growing at a clip at about 3.4 percent and a number of economists had said we would never in the United States be able to get above 2 percent. They were saying that before uh, Trump came in and they were bashing his economic agenda. But to your point, uh, Trump proved them wrong, correct, with his deregulatory and tax cut agenda.
1: Yeah, I think everyone in the beginning of 2020, before COVID hit, were thinking that we were going to sail through the re-election, essentially, because of the great economy, which has been kind of the trump card or trump card, no pun intended, of the administration.
0: So So then COVID hits, obviously, we know how it ends, but let's talk about some of the things that you've reflected on since then. So you have been in the public arena. Uh, you, you're not without you know, people who disagree with your views on economics. You've defended them um, in, in all sorts of arenas with people that don't agree with you. Let's talk about the su- suppression of ideas which occurred and how you think it, it may have played out, you know how the media was discriminating against certain views. And, and in retrospect, uh, did you understand that was happening at the time? And how would you suggest we, we avoid that uh, going forward? Or do you think it wasn't that big of a problem?
1: I mean, I think it was a pretty open... Within the White House, there was certainly an open debate. There was no cancellation <laughs> of certain views within the White House. But I mean, what happened was, I think, and this is traditional public health in some sense, public health people are very focused on one dimension, which is, you know, the the uh, the cases and the deaths involved with the disease, without seeing any trade-off, and they just want to minimize that. But public policy does not minimize, uh, you know, adverse health effects. I mean, we have we could have closed the highways a long time ago to reduce highway mortality, but we're living to we're willing to live with trade-offs where health is not optimized uh, for other potential benefits, essentially. Uh, so I think the public health community, because they think that way, they think that lying about things that leads to more prevention is actually beneficial in, in basically telling people or hiding information that would lead to less prevention uh, or people being less careful. They view us do as, as, as a public service because they're minimizing disease in the process and that's a very very common you saw that with hiv as well where they didn't want to talk about certain things which would lead to less prevention and they kind of viewed themselves as heroes for suppressing that kind of information and and so it's a kind of a long tradition in public health i think to to try to suppress any kind of information that will lead to more uh uh lack of prevention of disease and therefore, uh, more more of the disease in some sense. and they kind of view that as a as as their role and the beneficial role they have. In, yeah, I in think guiding,
0: right to so unpack that, drill down on that a little bit for just for a second. You know, they they would push out messages that perhaps maybe were one size fits all because they didn't want people to be thinking for themselves, and some people might make the wrong decision and choose no. too little prevention in the minds of the public health community. Yeah. So they they uniformed the message, they dumbed it down, and frequently they gave uh, improper um, and untruthful advice to people. The question I think we've got to figure out as a country is, is that even possible in the age of Twitter? It's, it was sort of bizarre to watch these all these efforts that have come out after the fact about members of the public uh, health Illuminati just reaching out to Twitter and other places saying, do not uh, disseminate this view, don't put this person on because they're saying iconoclastic views and it's or dangerous. Or
2: alternative views, which are right. based in fact, as, as Tom said. Who turned out to be right on some of these issues. Right, exactly. But again, putting falsehoods or misleading information out under the color of an MD after their name, and leaving the public without a full access to information and the ability to sort out individually, as people in a community, people in a family, people going to healthcare providers themselves, um, and making the the best decisions for themselves and their families, whereas at the same time, while well, you saw all that going on and the lockdowns and you know all the aggressive behavior to drive a certain narrative and a certain set of policy outcomes. When it came to some of the biggest important realities about how the world truly works, food production, distribution of food and medicines, keeping some of the essential operations of the United States up and running, there was none of that going on there. Instead, there was a clear eyed work directly with affected communities with affected industries to make sure they could stay up, stay open, stay operating. but that too was information that wasn't brought to the public so again, they couldn't sort out anything beyond much of a one dimensional approach, a one dimensional presentation to them as we started this and went through a, a lion's share of it
0: Tom it's not this is something you know obviously i was I was there with you for a lot of these um, a lot of these discussions and decisions that were made. In retrospect, recognizing it's live fire and you don't have the, the value of a crystal ball. But do you regret any decisions that you contributed to? Or what, what do you think was done wrong? Um, do you have any mea culpas uh, from that period? I know I certainly do. But I'm just curious as to what you may have realized in retrospect was, was not the right course.
1: I think I think everyone was so scared at the time of like, well, how many deaths are we going to have? It's that there was just such a overwhelming kind of new threat that I think policy wasn't made in a very constructive or productive way. And like that. But I insisted, even in February 2020, before we went dark and shut down, not sh- shut down, but in the latter part of March where we limited activity throughout the country, and I remember several February meetings where I essentially said, which I think I've stood by the whole time, and I think people have come to realize I think it's the better way to go, which is there's, there's a two-tiered strategy here. One is protect the older, the high-risk individuals while letting the younger people who drive the economy uh, have a much more interaction. This is not a young—it wasn't or it isn't. Uh, a, a big threat is to most of the young, the vast majority of young, the young population is mostly the old and frail. There's obviously immunity, immunosuppressed individuals in the young population, etc. But the, the trade-off between, there's two losses from a disease. One is the disease itself in morbidity and mortality, the other is the loss of preventing the disease which is in our, in this case with COVID was massive foregone economic activity essentially uh, by people not engaging in face-to-face contact. That could have been done with a much better trade-off than we did it essentially. So we estimate at University of Chicago that 80% of the loss from COVID in 2020 comes from reduced economic activity as opposed to 20% that came from mortality and morbidity from the disease the, itself, that trade-off the, was off. I think you know,
2: but the consequence yep. was economic for sure. But it was also on people's healthcare and their access, right? And to coverage addiction, and suicide, loneliness, no, no. I mean, there's two cost of prevention consequences two, on education yeah, and the ability of yeah. our children to socialize and and learn. Um, but also grow and mature You know, when you're out of school and, and your peer group for, in some cases, two plus years. I mean, there are a lot of consequences and trade-offs that were never briefed into the White House or people responsible for that didn't share that or bring it up or had the chance to, to point that out, which I think, at least for me, is unfortunate when you have People with significant roles and responsibilities at the Department of Health and Human Services, not coming and making these points for whatever reason. Well, they treat really it to, Tom's point. Really really their their messages
0: they they choose the same path in messaging to uh, the political appointees and the president of the United States that they did with the public. You know, they they hid information and they didn't provide yeah. nuance and didn't provide.
1: I mean, um, I, I think I think the big problem is that the discipline. I don't blame these individuals. I blame the discipline. No, I'm they they
2: trying come to be careful.
1: From. Yeah. So basically, the discipline they come from, which is public health, has no way of basically measuring or quantifying the total cost of a disease, which is cost of prevention. That could be you know, depression or what have you, drug use, it could be economic losses from foregoing economic activity, could be school closures, et cetera. That cost of prevention, how does that compare to the the, the cost of the disease in, in the sense of cost? I mean, loosely meaning morbidity and mortality. So they have no framework to assess these things, which is sort of a fundamental aspect of disease policy. So they're basically, you know, they don't have the the capability of having correct policy because they don't have a framework in that profession. I think that's ultimately why you get such misguided and sort of loose policy. And you have a virologist, Fauci, in charge of public health, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. He's he's not trained to make trade-offs in disease policy. He's trained in virology. So, I mean, The profession, I think, is such a poor, you know, they have such a poor ability or tools in their profession to analyze these things, which I think economists have analyzed much more fruitfully the last uh, 30 years, essentially.
2: So drawing on some of these experiences and hopefully some of these lessons, we've seen people in Congress and around in states take stabs at trying to update how we handle significant health outbreaks, pandemics, and the like. Um, Has anybody that you've heard or seen actually hit the mark? Have some of these lessons actually been incorporated, either in practices recommended by the Biden administration or bills up on the Hill? Or are we just compounding some of the same mistakes in the lack of information, the lack of an honest conversation about trade-offs in the legislative structures, the spending, the priorities that the, the Biden administration have laid out?
1: I think people are on to the next thing, right? So they don't, you know, once the, this is subsided, people are on to the next thing. But I, unfortunately, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but I do think that the public is going to have a lot less tolerance with excessive prevention in the future, given what they just went through. I think that's going to ring through both to lawmakers that are representing that public, but also in the, in the general population. There was, you know, as a growing discontent with these mandatory regulations, et cetera, that has grown over time. And people are becoming more and more convinced that prevention was excessive, especially in the young population, which for which this was not a risk. It was a risk, but it was not a huge risk, certainly not a risk uh, that would justify so much loss in economic activity and health and education, et cetera, that we undertook.
2: Tom, I know we're getting close to the end of this segment. If you have a minute or two to kind of reflect on your experience at the White House this time, obviously you've been in the administrations before, the executive branch before, but this time you're the acting chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. You're advising the president directly and senior policymakers. Decisions that you're recommending that take effect are incredibly consequential and leading the improvement of lives not just of your fellow Americans, but folks around the world. Tell us, was it a really cool experience? What did you really enjoy about it?
1: I mean, I think before COVID, everyone in the economic cap, whether you were at the National Economic Council, the Council of Economic Advisors, whether you were Treasury, et cetera, OMB, everyone was very, very psyched about what was going on because we thought we were making a big impact. And, you know, above everything else, the poor were doing better. We have huge real wage growth, etc. in the middle income. It was what we call the blue collar boom, essentially. Mm-hmm. So I think people were very happy and proud. And there was a lot uh, of agreement about that this is the right path forward. Once COVID hit, their disagreements started coming a little bit more, not only between public health and the econ folks, but also within the econ camp. So that wasn't such a fun period, at least not for me.
0: (laughs) Well, I gotta say, Tom, you guys were awesome to work with. It was a real pleasure. Of course, I had known you before we served together in the Trump administration, but I never worked with you like, uh, like I was able to, and Casey and Kevin Hassett, Tyler, I mean, you just had a, a just a murderer's row of incredibly smart people. I can't even name them all on that economic team. It was a it was a blast to work with you guys. I learned so much. I I laughed my keister off uh, every meeting we had with you guys, and it was it was just so much fun. And I'm so glad that you took time today to sit down with Eric and I for DC EKG, and uh, we look forward to the next
2: opportunity.
1: My pleasure, guys. It's been a treat.
2: Thanks so much, Tom. I'm Eric Euland, along with Joe Grogan for DCEKG, a production of Big Wig Media Network and our partner Evergreen. Thanks so much. Look forward to talking with you again.